This is the Worth Recovery Podcast, featuring women and addiction. Welcome back to another episode of the Worth Recovery Podcast. I'm Amy. I'm your host here, and I'm a sex addict, and I've been sober since December 2nd of 2012, and I'm excited to be with you today and to share some of my thoughts. I've had some uh, worthiness, maybe, issues come up today. Uh, Actually, it's been coming up for about a week. Just this idea of like, what am I doing? What do I have to offer here? Why am I so insistent that I continue to try to podcast And I only share that with you because I think that that's something that we all struggle with at all stages of our lives. Addicts or not, I don't care. I think that we all go through phases where we start to wonder, like, what am I doing? And is this really making a difference? And is this really what I need to be doing? Or is this really what I should be doing with myself, right? We start shooting on ourselves Um, and should be doing with my time and is it even helping and what do I even think I have to offer? That's the question that's been going through my mind is what do I even think I have to offer people? Like why, why do I think that this is even helping? Um, and I don't, so I was going to say, I don't, I don't share that thinking that I need validation because I, I don't, I really do think that what I have to offer is valuable It's just that we get these shame gremlins. That's what Brene Brown calls them. We get these, you know, thoughts that show up and try to deter us from doing the things that we want to or need to or could be doing in our lives. And so I share that with you just to show you that you can push through. I'm pushing through this morning while I have some thoughts prepared and I have some things that I want to share today. I also am pushing through these shame gremlins that are showing up. And by pushing through, I'm kind of talking back to them and saying, no, that's not, that's not real. That's not true. Um, I do have things to offer. What I have to offer is valuable. People do find my work valuable. So you can do that too. I guess that's why I'm sharing it. You can do that too. You can still push through those shame gremlins, you can talk back to them, you can tell them that they're wrong, and you can push through and do the things that you need to do in order to recover, in order to change your life, in order to find recovery, in order to get sober, whatever it is, in order to change your relationship, whatever it is you need, you can push through those shame gremlins too and and do what, do what you want to do. That's what I am doing this morning. So, there we go. And sometimes just talking about it helps. Sometimes telling someone helps. I know it has helped me right now in this moment to just put it out there. This is what's going on for me. This is what's happening. And a lot of times I don't even need feedback. I don't even need anybody to validate what's happening. Just speaking what's happening for me out loud is incredibly helpful. So there you go. That's what's going on for me this morning. What I want to talk about today though, and what I have prepared to talk about today a little bit is the paradigms of addiction or the models of addiction 
that have been going on in the world that are continuing to go on in the world that are changing and updating or moving on from or all those types of things. There's really three or four kind of main models of addiction, but I, I wanted to talk about kind of my evolution of how I view myself and my addictive behavior. And hopefully that in doing that, hopefully that will be helpful for you and you'll be able to uh, find the model of addiction that works for you. One, that's one of the questions that I get asked the most. Um, I think one of the questions I get asked the most is, will you always be an addict? Will you always identify as an addict? Will you always call yourself an addict? Will you always refer to yourself as an addict? And it's, it's a very popular train of thought. Once an addict, always an addict. And we say that all of the time. We hear that in most of the 12-step fellowships out there. Um, once an addict, always an addict. And some people will even refer to themselves, right? Or they have an addict within themselves. They'll, they'll say, oh, that was my addict that was thinking that way. Or um, that, that was addict brain or addict thinking. Some people even take that as far as to say, like, I will never say I've recovered from addiction. I will always say I'm recovering from addiction. It's always a process happening. And they won't use the word recovered um, as in a past tense, something happening to them, but they'll use the term recovering as in it's a current process that they're working through. I don't think any of those are wrong. I think whatever, I spent the majority of my recovery saying the same thing and believing the same thoughts. I don't think that there is anything wrong for you if that's, if that option is working for you. I do wonder, though, about our personal growth and what we're doing for our growth. I'm always asking myself, is that working for me? Is that train of thought, that habit, that behavior, the way I talk to myself, the way I refer to myself, or the way I labor my, label myself, is that working for me, right? Like, is it working for me to tell myself I don't have anything valuable to offer? No, that doesn't work for me. And so I have to fight against that. And I have to push through that shame or those gremlins or however you want to refer to that and do what I want to be doing. There was definitely a period of time for me when once an addict, always an addict worked for me. It kept me vigilant. It kept me constantly working, constantly diligent on my recovery. I knew I didn't want to relapse or even slip. I knew I didn't want to fall back in like, quote, addict brain or addict thinking. And so this line of thinking helped me stay focused and it helped me stay diligent. As I continued to grow in sobriety and in recovery, and as I read and studied and as I began coaching and then went back to school to get my therapy license, I began to learn a whole lot more about these different kind of models of addiction or paradigms of addiction. For a long time, we have followed what's called the disease approach to addiction. The big book of AA was the referent, the first to reference addiction from a disease model. It's definitely a step in the right direction. Prior to that, addiction was really mostly viewed as a moral failing. Moving from viewing addiction as a moral failing to a disease model is helpful and very hopeful for a lot of people. I'm a firm believer that no one changes their behavior from shame. You can't shame yourself into proper behavior or not even proper behavior. You can't shame yourself into change, whatever change that is. You can't shame yourself into that. 
Just like you can't hate yourself into loving yourself, right? Viewing addiction as a moral failing is the shame model of addiction. The belief, and this is still held by many, many people, I'm sure you've encountered this, is that people with addictions aren't, quote, strong enough to change their behavior. They are, quote, bad people and get what they deserve. I'm sure that you've seen that before. That's portrayed in movies. That's portrayed in the way that we treat people with addictions. Um, That's portrayed in a lot of the media that we see. Like I said, this belief is still held by many, many people. I would say thousands and thousands of people. And I used to believe that about myself. I shamed myself for decades for these, quote, bad habits that I couldn't get the strength to overcome. I never felt good enough. I felt like I was a bad person and that this was what I deserved in life. In fact, a lot of times, one of the hallmarks of sex addiction in all three books, um, all three major sex addiction fellowships, SA, SAA, and SLAA, is that you look um, for acting out partners in what you might consider like a lower um, societal level than you. For instance, I'm not, I'm not a drug user. I've never used any kind of illicit drug or illegal substance or anything like that. And yet for a while I was dating a drug dealer. I shouldn't say dating. I was acting out with, uh, and those, I mean, those things just don't match. Right. (laughs) And so, I don't feel good about myself. I don't feel like I deserve more than that. I don't feel like I felt like I was just a bad person. And this was kind of what, what I qualified for. And so we use that shame model of addiction or that I'm a bad person or a moral failing model of addiction to keep ourselves there. And when other people use it, again, it keeps us there. It doesn't change us, right? Shame does not change us. What we've learned, though, is that shame does bring about compliance. People might comply with your request if you shame them long enough, but compliance doesn't change. And typically when the shame is gone, the person goes back to their previous behavior. I did this to myself. I could shame myself hard enough and long enough that for a period of time I would stay sober. But the change never stuck. I couldn't get it to maintain Um, for, I couldn't maintain any kind of change for a long period of time. So when the big book of AA came out, they referenced addiction as a disease rather than a moral failing. And this has been progress. It was huge progress. It definitely helped me when I read the big book, um, to think that this was more of a disease, something more kind of out of my control a little bit. Uh, And those that struggle with alcohol consumption were now able to get a lot more help than they were before using this disease model. This disease model works for a lot of different people. I've heard them talk about, I've heard people talk about their disease or um, as an kind of like an allergy. So I have an allergy to lust. That's what SA usually talks about. And because it's an allergy, right? There are things that I need to do in order to stay healthy. I have to avoid certain things. Just like if I had an allergy to peanuts, I wouldn't just grab a bag of peanuts and start eating, right? Because that's, that could kill me. In the same way, the big book references, um, alcohol as an alcoholism, as an 
an allergy to alcohol. And, and so again, we avoid the things that we need to avoid in order to take care of ourselves. This allergy model or this, I should say, disease model has worked. It's worked for a lot, thousands, I would say maybe even millions of people that this disease model has worked for. It's great. It does a lot of good. The idea, you know, is that this is this is a problem kind of outside of myself, but it's something that I can learn and manage. And just like with an allergy, my allergies don't go away over time. And so I refer to myself as recovering. My addict doesn't go away. It just becomes dormant or it goes into remission, but doesn't go away. I'm not recovered. And that's where that model idea comes from. And that, like I said, I don't think there's anything wrong with that. If that's what is helping you, if that's what's getting you through, that's what got me through for a really long time. This idea that my addiction was something outside of myself. It was a disease that I had kind of caught. However, I also had family members with diseases. My mom had multiple sclerosis. Um, I had other family members with other types of diseases, rheumatoid arthritis, cancer, those types of things. And I, I had a hard time reconciling that, that addiction was a disease when there was so much choice involved where there's no choice involved with things like cancer. Um, there's no choice involved with things like multiple sclerosis. And so it was hard for me to kind of reconcile that. But like I said, it was working for me. And so I didn't fight it because it is what got me sober. And a lot of times, some of the early days of my recovery, I had to remind myself over and over again that I was living in impaired thinking. I did have impaired thought processes because my very best thinking got me to an addiction, an addiction that almost ruined my life. And, and so I had to remind myself over and over again that there were things I didn't see and there were options that maybe felt weird, but yet I had to explore them because I had to change my thought processes. I had to change the way that I viewed things and change the way that I looked at situations in order to change and get sober. And that's an essential part of recovery is kind of surrendering this idea that I know best or I know more than anybody else. Another thing that we have to surrender is that, surrender is that we're unique. Um, that was a big one for me. Well, that didn't work for me, I would tell myself. I tried that, but that didn't work for me. And then I'd have to really get honest about how much I tried and how hard I tried. And if I was actually trying the actual system or whatever behavior or whatever you know tool before I, I could say that didn't work for me. That was a hard, hard process for me, but also good. Also good. Way good, actually. And so while I questioned this disease model... I went along with it because it was working for me and it worked for me, worked for me a long time, a long time. Um, and it's what got me sober and it's what helped me. And like I said, most of my recovery, and if I have referred to myself as a recovering addict, um, that I, that I, that I'm still in the process of recovery. And I do believe that recovery is a lifelong process. And so if that's how you refer to yourself, that's awesome. Recovery is lifelong. 
I am still doing things to recover from my addiction or from the years that I spent in addiction. So that's a great model. And as we're continuing to learn and we're continuing to understand more about the brain, more about neuroscience, more about our nervous system, more about how our nervous system interacts, how it responds, as we're continuing to learn more, there is also additional models of addiction that are showing up. And so I want to share with you kind of one today that really works for me and is really working for clients that I work with, both in therapy and in coaching, um, and, and also just my fellow travelers in addiction. So I view addiction currently, this is my current view, and uh, things change, of course, as we go along. And we learn more and our lives evolve and change. We should always be evolving and changing. It's a big internal belief I have. We should always be evolving and changing. Addiction, I view addiction currently as a symptom. Addiction is simply a symptom. And it's a symptom of deeper issues that have been going on in your life. Addiction is a coping mechanism. It's a coping mechanism that we learned usually early in life. We're exposed to something that causes us a need to cope, a need to have some tools to self-soothe. We see this all the time with everybody. Um, whether they turn into an addict or not, we learn tools as a child to self-soothe ourselves, to self, to soothe our nervous system and to self-regulate our emotions. Uh, sucking our thumb, that's a very common one. Attachment to a bottle also a very common one. Attachment to some type of blanket or some type of stuffed animal. Also a very common way that children learn to regulate their emotions and soothe themselves. It might also be attachment to some kind of food or attachment to some kind of liquid, chocolate milk, juice, anything like that. Um, Fruit snacks, something like that, right? We could always have an attachment to something that we use to regulate ourselves, to bring us back to a calmer state. If we have gotten, you know, either out of our window of tolerance, we've talked about that on this podcast before, but basically when our emotions get out of control or when our emotions get shut down, we find some way to regulate ourselves. And that behavior is normal. We always want to regulate ourselves. We always want to come back to a calm state. We don't want to be in a state of anger or panic or fear all the time. We want to be able to come back to a calm state. So we all learn those regulating behaviors. Now, there's nothing wrong with that. Like I said, as we get older, hopefully we start to learn different types of behaviors. We learn behaviors that help us, right? We learn that we can talk to a a trusted adult if we're starting to get panicked we learn, as we learn more words, we learn to voice our concerns or our problems. And so we can talk about the things that we need and we can talk about what's going on for us. And we aren't dependent on things like a stuffed animal or a blanket because we have more words and we can talk to people and the adults in our life, hopefully are available to help us learn emotional regulation. That's one of the main purposes of adults and children is to help them learn emotional regulation. That might not have happened for you. And so as you got older, 
Maybe you learn to retreat into yourself or find secret behaviors that helped you to regulate. Um, For me, I know one of that was food. I would steal or sneak food um, at night to help me, again, calm down and regulate. I also remember even as late as junior high school, uh, I had some time at home after school by myself. Before the other kids came home, before my mom came home, before my dad came home, I was by myself. I had about an hour and a half. I had a favorite TV show, Airwolf. That was my favorite TV show. I would watch Airwolf every day and I had a food ritual. I would eat a bowl of rice checks with bananas. Still my favorite cereal. Rice checks with bananas. I would eat a bowl of ice cream usually if there was ice cream in the house or I'd have like an ice cream snack or something like that. But I would, I had this like food ritual. I'd turn on the TV, I'd watch these things and, and then I'd eat these things and I would feel prepared, I guess is probably the right word for the rest of my family to come home and to deal with all of them. I hate saying that, but that's, that's true. That is absolutely true of my life. Um, and And then, you know, hopefully you've got people in your life. Like I didn't have adults in my life that really helped me learn how to regulate. I can remember many instances where I came to my parents, particularly my mom, out of concern for something and had her like laugh at me. Um, During that same period of time that I'm thinking about junior high, I didn't know a whole lot about sex. I didn't know a whole lot about how you got pregnant. I didn't know any of those things actually. And, uh, so one day, you know, I was maybe like a year into my period and one day or one time it was late, like really late, like, you know, a week or two. And I asked some of my friends at school, like my period's late. We were talking about periods, you know, how girls do. (laughs) We were talking about it. And I mentioned that my period was late and my friend in band, Beth, she said, well, maybe you're pregnant. And I was like, no, I can't be pregnant. I mean, that's kind of like my instant response was like, no, I can't be pregnant. And she went on to tell me that you could get pregnant if you went to the bathroom after a boy too quickly. Like if they went to the bathroom and then you went in there too fast and used the bathroom, you could get pregnant. Oh, I know you're laughing to yourself, right? I know. I know. That's why my mom laughed at me when I told her that story, because I was panicked. I did not know how that actually worked at the age of 12 or 13. I was probably 13. I didn't know how that actually worked. I had no idea. And so when I got home and I told my mom, my period's late and I think I'm pregnant. And she's like, why do you think you're pregnant? And I told her why I thought I was pregnant rather than give me the actual information about penises and vaginas and sex and how all that works, she just laughed at me and was like, no, Amy, you're not pregnant. (laughs) You can't get pregnant that way. And that was the end of that discussion. And then she did tell me it's normal for your period to be erratic the first couple years. And that was about it. And so I didn't get a lot of emotional or information there. I didn't get a lot of support. I didn't get a lot of emotional regulation, nor did I get the sexual education information that I needed at that time. It wasn't till a little bit later that I got that information. However, point being in all of this, um, is that we have to have a way to self-soothe and we have to have a way to regulate ourselves emotionally. 
Now, we know that there are certain behaviors that will do that for us really quickly. One is sex. Masturbation is typically one of those things. It comes with a huge, huge fill of endorphins that make us feel good and emotionally regulate ourselves. And so as we go through life, we develop these habits that help us to emotionally regulate. It can be a lot of different things. It can be sex. It can be masturbation. It can be pornography. It can be texting. It can be Diet Coke, right? I went through a period of time where I could do anything with a Diet Dr. Pepper in my hand. I'm currently not drinking soda at all, which has been so amazing for me. But there was a period of time where I knew that if I could, if I had to do something hard or I had to get a whole lot of work done or something like that, I knew I could do anything with a drink in my hand. And I would go and get one and then I would come home and power through hours of really hard work. But it was the way that I emotionally regulated myself and gave me, gave me confidence, gave me help. We have a lot of different ways that we do that. If you think about your life, you can probably come up with some. For some people, like I said, it's food is a very common one. Sex can be a common one. Relationships can be a common one. Um, video games, uh, whether that's Candy Crush or something you're playing on your phone, all the way to Xbox games or different types of things that might be um, taking up time but also calm you down and emotionally regulate you, right? Now, what happens is we need to be constantly emotionally regulated, Right? We need to constantly figure out where we're at and how we get back to a window of tolerance, a normal regulated state. So these behaviors, sometimes we turn to them over and over and over and over and over and over again. And our brain starts to learn, oh, this is how I emotionally regulate. I look at pornography. I masturbate. I read erotica. I get online and scroll through endless dating profiles. I post a dating profile or some kind of ad online and get a lot of responses and validation. That's how I prove my worth. I text back and forth with someone all day long in flirty ways to emotionally regulate myself and help me feel desired. I drink a Diet Coke every day at a certain time. I have physical exercise that I do. I go hiking once a week. I do a lot of different things that can turn into some type of addiction. I drink, right? I use drugs. I figure out whatever I need to, Adderall or whatever's going on in order to help myself calm, be calm and focused. Now, these behaviors, some of them turn into maladaptive, addictive behaviors. Not all of them and not for everyone, but some of them they do. Um, especially those that maybe are lonely um, especially those that maybe feel a lot of pressure in their life, uh, they turn to these behaviors over and over again and they become maladaptive. Maladaptive meaning that they are harming you more than they're helping you and they are they worked at some point in time. That's why we call them adaptive because at some point in time they are working, but now they're no longer serving you, right? At some point in time, Diet Coke worked for me. <laughs> That's a bad one as an example. Diet Dr. Pepper is really what I used. Um, but at some point in time, I realized, wait, the caffeine, I mean, 
I had built up such a tolerance to that and a variety of things. And I just decided that, no, that's not working for me anymore. And so I had to take myself off of that. But we always have those behaviors that we develop that are helping us or hurting us. And we have to be the ones that are evaluating that. So when I say addiction is just a symptom, I say it's these maladaptive behaviors that we turn to over and over again that become addictive to our brain because of the neural pathway it developed over and over and over and over and over again in our brain. Some people will call that a disease of the brain because we've developed these neural pathways. But the reason I don't like to call it that is because we also know of neuroplasticity, which means that we can physically change our brain based on the way that we think, based on our behaviors, based on what we do, based on treatment models. We can physically change the way our brain operates, the way it looks at things, its paradigms. And, And so it's not something that's a forever process. You can change your brain if you are dedicated to that and willing and wanting to make that happen. So kind of our conclusion here today is that there are many ways to look at addiction. My current view of addiction is addiction is a symptom. It's a symptom, but as you know, in all medical models, we have to treat the symptom before we can treat the root cause or at least stabilize the symptoms and then treat the root cause. And that's how I work with my clients, both in therapy and in coaching, is that our goal is to stabilize the addictive behavior, create some boundaries around it, make sure it's no longer harming you, make sure if we can get all the way sober, then we get all the way sober. Fantastic. If we can't get all the way sober because what the underlying cause is so devastating that we can't get all the way sober. Okay. We get as sober as we can, as sober as we can before we start to treat these underlying causes of addiction, the underlying causes of why I needed to cope, why I needed a coping mechanism to begin with. That's where we start to really hit things like intimacy disorders. We start to hit childhood neglect. We start to hit lack of emotional skills, lack of understanding of self. We start to hit these kind of underlying issues that have created a need to adapt, a need to have an addiction, a symptom to begin with. But we can't do that until the addiction is stable because if we, I like to think of it as like the symptoms kind of above ground and the underlying issues are below ground. And if I start digging in the dirt, I start pulling out all those things. I start to try to figure all that out. What happens on the top of the surface is chaos, right? gets disrupted and usually that addiction goes into overdrive. And so we have to stabilize that addiction. We have to figure out other ways of coping before we can start to dig in the dirt and to really look at some of those deeper underlying issues that are causing the need for an addiction, the need for a maladaptive coping mechanism. In that, we also give you lots of different other types of coping mechanisms so that you're not just looking to that addiction to be the the savior, the one, you know, the thing that does it all the time, right? That's the hard thing about addiction is usually the behavior is something that is reliable. It's something that works every single time. I love it when my uh, clients come to me and say things like, I slipped or I relapsed and it just didn't do it. 
Oh, that's like, that's awesome. Because that means that your addiction is somewhat broken, right? Like it's not doing it for you anymore. It's not fixing you. It's not giving you that emotional regulation that you need. And that is a sign of progress. That's a sign that your brain is starting to reject that as emotional regulation, which is awesome. And we want to give you additional tools to help you get there and help you find those ways to regulate. So there are a lot of people writing about this. Um, There's a lot of people talking about this model of addiction. Uh, One of the more popular ones is Alex Kate Hawkins. She runs the Center for Healthy Sex down in Los Angeles, California. And her her book is titled Sex Addiction as Effect Dysregulation. And um, there's a lot of really great information there about this idea that sex addiction is the dysregulation of our affect, right? Or our emotional consciousness, basically. Um, and I, I love this model. This is a model that um, has been helpful for me. Do I still label myself as an addict? I do. There are still things that I'm working on. Do I still talk about myself in, as recovering? Sometimes. Because sometimes I do say I've recovered from sex addiction. There are other things I'm recovering from. But sex addiction is not one of them. That's not one of the major issues in my life anymore. Um, and I, I want to normalize the idea that our brains can change and that we can eventually call ourselves recovered. But I'm not quite there yet. I wouldn't say that. In sex addiction, I would. But in other areas, I've still got things going on. Do I still go to meetings? Yes, I still go to meetings. Do I still work 12 steps? Yes, I absolutely still work the 12 steps in my life. And I'm also working on these other areas of emotional regulation, making sure that I can emotionally regulate myself, making sure I have tools to do that. I'm working on other behaviors that I would, I have used in the past to do that, that are maladaptive, that aren't really helping me anymore. And so it's a, it's a journey, right? There's a lot of different ways. I'm glad that addiction has moved from being viewed as a moral failing to being viewed as a disease. I think that's a huge step forward for the addictive, the idea of addiction and those that have addictive behaviors. And I'm glad that we're starting to also explore this next idea of an addictive model and how that can help us in recovering from our addictions. So I hope that was helpful for you today. Um, Thank you for helping me to push through my shame gremlins uh, and recognize that there is a lot that we can all offer to this world of addiction recovery. And we all need to be there and to offer the information and knowledge that we have. I hope you remember that wherever you're at today, however far you think you've gone, however much involved in shame you are, um, whatever's going on for you today, mentally, emotionally, physically, that you are worth recovery. You are 100% worth the effort, the time, the money, whatever it takes to find recovery. You are worth that. If you don't believe me, if you don't believe that for yourself, then believe me and lean on my knowledge of that until you're ready to believe that for yourself. Remember that I think about you, I pray for you, and I love you. Until next time.
the legal stuff. The mission of Worth Recovery is to dispel shame and build hope in the lives of women struggling with and recovering from sex addiction. I am not associated with any 12-step group, religious organization, or therapeutic clinic. I am an addict sharing my own experiences and recovery.